Milwaukee United Church of Christ presents The Next Right Thing, a reflection by the Reverend Jean Randall Bodman, presented on Sunday, August 23rd, 2020. I'm wondering if you ever wonder if God is active in the world. I mean, especially here in 2020, what with pandemic and wildfire and tropical storms and political storms. Do you ever wonder what part of all of that has anything to do with God? Many people see ongoing acts of God in the magnificence of the unfolding creation. Others interpret hurricane and wildfire and tsunami as mighty acts of a wrathful God. Many trace the spirit of God in the long sweep of human history and the arc of the moral universe bending toward justice. Others see naked power as proof of God's blessing. Do you, wonder, do you ever wonder if anything you do connects in any way with God's will for the world? Today's reading from Exodus offers us a deliciously subversive answer to this question of God's presence and the question of human participation in the will of God for people. It's a wonderful little story hidden right here in plain view at the very beginning of the paradigmatic story of God's active deliverance of the people from their captivity in Egypt. Some context. For the ancient people of the Near East, the favor of God was shown in political power. That Pharaoh was king of Egypt meant that he must be close to the divine. The great cultural and political flourishing that spread Egypt's power and influence up through Israel and Paris, Palestine and as far away as Syria was even more evidence of Pharaoh's blessing. Pharaoh was revered as nearly divine himself. Now, as you may remember from last week's story and as the beginning of this week's story alludes to, the descendants of Abraham and Sarah had been forced by drought and famine to relocate to the Egyptian countryside. One of the sons, Joseph, arrived ahead of the others, having been sold into slavery. But he arrived by what he saw as the work and will of God. And by the work and will of God, he rose and fell and rose again to Pharaoh's right hand saving the land from famine by predicting the drought. And by the will and way of God, he was there to welcome his desperate family members when they came looking for grain. So when the whole people of Israel arrived in Egypt, they arrived as honored guests and they settled and remained as honored guests. But time rolled forward. And by the time this king arose, this Pharaoh, all of that help given by Joseph was forgotten and all of that honor and security offered to the whole extended family was gone. The once favored people had become an oppressed subgroup within Pharaoh's empire. 
All this latest Pharaoh could see was a group of foreigners thriving in his realm. Those people with their foreign language and their weird eating habits and their strange one God focused religion. Who did they think they were to thrive in that way? On the one hand, Pharaoh was worried that they might continue growing and get so numerous and so powerful that if he ever came to war, they would side with his enemies and he'd really be in trouble. On the other hand, Pharaoh worried that these people might escape on their own terms. And then where would he find workers on whose backs he could build his economy? Now, Pharaoh was not a person to be trifled with. Listen to the vocabulary used in this part of the story. Powerful, war, enemies, taskmasters, oppress, dread, ruthless, bitter, hard service, forced labor. Pharaoh tried to break the people. When none of it worked, Pharaoh upped the ante and plotted genocide. Enter the women whose names we barely know and often forget about altogether. Learn these names, remember them. Jochebed and Miriam, the mother and sisters of Moses. We didn't even hear their names in the reading today. That doesn't come till later in the story, but we need to remember who they are. The daughter of Pharaoh, the princess, and most of all, Shifra and Pua, two Hebrew midwives who became the deliverer of God's chosen deliverer, Moses. These five bold women changed the world by their brave defiance of Pharaoh's genocidal decree. Let's start with Shifra and Pua. I hope it gave you pause when Chris read, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, how did that happen? Did he summon them, send transport to bring them under armed guard to his palace? Did he ride up alongside them as they went about their business and speak down to them from his chariot? I hope you see what an outrageous imbalance of power the women were in. The godlike ruler of an empire ordering the birthing women of an unloved foreign subgroup to assist him in committing genocide against their own people. We don't know what they said, but we do know what they did. Having more awe for God than for the emperor, they ignored Pharaoh's order and brought all the children into the world living, female and male alike. Here's the part of the story I find hardest to understand. Pharaoh noticed that the Hebrew community continued to grow. I don't know how long it took him to notice, but when he did notice, he did not have Shifra and Pua summarily executed as one might expect from such a man who was, after all, plotting genocide. Instead, he calls them in and asks for an explanation. They did something quite subversive. They used Pharaoh's cultural biases against him. You know how these Hebrew people are, they say, so different from Egyptians. They're so vigorous. This is a Hebrew word that exists only in this one spot 
in all of scripture, but it's related to a word that means wild animal. These Hebrews, they're like wild animals. Babies just are birthed, no problem. They're not like us. They don't feel pain the same way we do. There is a long history of groups in power making this assumption about the people that they're ruling over, that they don't feel pain in the same way, that they're closer to animals in that way. The Japanese said it about the Chinese, the Europeans said it about the indigenous people of the Americas and about Africans. Shifra and Pua use this racism to their advantage. They lie. They lie and Pharaoh evidently buys it. Why wouldn't he? It confirms his prejudice. Those Hebrews, they're not like us. Shifra and Pua live to deliver more babies. Babies like the son of Jochebed. Jochebed has her baby and nurses him in defiant secrecy for three months. Perhaps that's when he started rolling over and she knew after rolling comes crawling and after that, she won't be able to keep him hidden much longer. Now, while he was still tiny and so vulnerable, she staked everything on sparking the love of a foreign woman's heart. She set her beloved baby in his waterproof basket at the place where the princess and her retinue regularly went down to the river. It was an enormous risk. But Moses' sister Miriam stayed close by to help. When the princess saw the helpless baby, when her heart was moved by compassion by his crying, Miriam did help. Pharaoh's daughter, the princess, knew that this must be one of the Hebrew, that this baby must belong to one of the Hebrew mothers. But Miriam slid in and said to the princess, before she could lose that inclination of her heart to be kind, she said, shall I go and get you a woman from the Hebrews to nurse this child for you? And of course she went and got her very own mother, Moses's own mother. It seems reasonable to me that Pharaoh's daughter understood exactly what was going on. She colluded with the God-fearing women to subvert the will of Pharaoh. Each of these five women acted according to their awe for God and in accordance with their own hearts. Not knowing the grand outcome of the story, they each just did the next right thing. By listening to God in their own hearts and doing the next right thing, they became the first deliverers in the book of deliverance. If the first half of the sh story showed us the vocabulary of outraged empire, the second half reveals the vocabulary of God's saving presence. Married, conceived, bore. Baby, sister, daughter, mother, bathe, pity. God's sovereignty is manifest in tender compassion and care. There are epic stories of burning bushes and parted seas and flaming mountains to come. God's deliverance in bold letters. But before all that, 
This is also how God is active in the world. When ordinary women acting in reverence for God and in, in accordance with their own hearts, do the next right thing. Learn these names, remember them. Yachabed, Miriam, and the daughter of Pharaoh, Shifra and Pua. I was reminded of those five bold women last week when I was listening to a political speech and I heard a roll call of other often forgotten women. Women who fought for female suffrage. And then after women won the vote, but most black women were still excluded, they kept right on fighting. That is what it looks like when the spirit of God is bending the arc of the moral universe toward justice. Mary Church Terrell and Mary McLeod Bethune, Fannie Lou Hamer and Diane Nash, Constance Baker Motley and the great Shirley Chisholm. We're not often taught their stories either, and we don't often remember their names, but they too are deliverers. You never know when God will raise up the next deliverer. You never know when God will raise up the next deliverers of the deliverer. You never know whose act will lead to salvation. But we do know how to stand in the line of good trouble and be open to God's spirit. We know how to stand in awe of God and not empire, how to listen to our own hearts and keep doing the next right thing. Paul reminds us that there is not just one way to serve, not just one calling, but many, and every one of them is essential to the body of Christ. Reinhold Niebuhr, that great American theologian, who long before I got there, taught at the seminary I went to, which is why I wanted to go there. He said these words, Nothing that is worth doing can be achieved in our lifetime. Therefore, we must be saved by hope. Nothing which is true or beautiful or good makes complete sense in any immediate context of history. Therefore, we must be saved by faith. Nothing we do, however virtuous, can be accomplished alone. Therefore, we must be saved by love. And finally, no virtuous act is quite as virtuous from the standpoint of our friend or our foe as it is from our own standpoint. Therefore, we must be saved by the final form of love, which is forgiveness. When you are wondering about how and if God is acting in the world, when you are wondering how to participate in the acts of God in the world. When you need some inspiration, whisper these names to yourself, Yachabed and Miriam and the daughter of Pharaoh, Shifra and Pua. Each one made her choice and together they changed the world. Amen. Listen, listen, listen.